Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kit's crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Anchor Bay Church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Well, one of the things that we like to do to start our sermons is just to be quiet before the Lord, to take a personal inventory and invite God to speak to us in the unique things that we brought into the room this morning. Whatever your story is, whatever's going on in your story, uh, whatever you're mulling about, we want to offer that to, to God to speak into. So I'd invite us to just take a moment of silence, take that inventory, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and then I will open us in a word of prayer after a moment. God, you are so good, and you invite us into so many good things. We ask that this morning you would show us those good things, 
that you would ignite in us fresh gratitude for who you are, for who we are in light of who you are, and that you would encourage and empower us to extend the same kind of hospitality and love and kindness that you have extended to us, to the people around us in our lives. We love you. We thank you for your word, which teaches us new things every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we haven't met yet, it's because I'm coming back from a three-month sabbatical. Uh, So last week was my first week back with us. Uh, So you could actually be newer with us. You could have already, like, checked out our church, decided to make our church your home, and joined a life group and a ministry team, and gotten deeply invested, and never have heard our lead pastor preach which is kind of amazing. I got to connect with a a handful of Anchor Bay peeps this week, and I kind of heard about how people are doing this last spring and summer. And the number one thing that people told me about how our church is doing is just how amazing the rest of our staff and leaders are and were over the last few months. So can we give them another round of applause? We thanked them last week, but... I was um, hanging out with a friend who does not go to our church over my sabbatical, And she was like, I just have one question for you. How are you not worried about your work? And I was like, because we've got an amazing team. I just got to take a total break and not have to worry that things were going to keep going or that our church was going to shut down because we have incredible other pastors and ministry leaders and a board who carry things for me. So I am very grateful for that. All right. Well, I want to open this morning with a couple of questions. First question. What is something that you used to be wrong about? I'll give you a couple things that I used to be wrong about. I thought that Alaska was an island until I was 15. And I I think that's kind of fair because like on US maps, it shows Alaska with Hawaii and as like its own separate little territory. I think, do we have a map? Um, So that feels like it's kind of a fair assumption, but I was wrong about that. I used to think that bees could only sting you until you turn 12. And after you were, like, after your 12th birthday, you were free of ever being stung by a bee. I actually have never been stung by a bee still, and I'm over 12, so that one might be true. I used to think that if you were attacked by a coyote, which was apparently something that I was really deeply afraid of, you, if you put a stick on your head, they would think that you were bigger than them, and they would run away, so you were safe from the coyote. But I was wrong about that. What about you? What is something that you used to be wrong about? Okay, next question. What is something that you are currently wrong about? Maybe you're wrong about how to fold the towels or how to load the dishwasher. Maybe you're wrong about whether it's better to rent or to buy. Maybe you're wrong about who actually left the window open with the AC on. Or maybe it's your politics. Maybe you're wrong about Donald Trump or about Joe Biden. Or maybe you're wrong about gun control or abortion access or climate change. What are you currently wrong about? Or maybe, maybe you're like me and you have a hard time thinking about anything that you are currently wrong about. Most most of us can think about something that we used to be wrong about, but we have a harder time thinking about something that we are currently wrong about. And just like the rest of humanity, we kind of subconsciously go, go around assuming that we are pretty much right pretty much all the time. I mean, obviously, we all know that we all make mistakes, part of being human, but at the same time, most of us spend our lives assuming and sometimes insisting to other people that our current convictions and current practices and current assessments of other people and situations are pretty much right pretty much all the time. 
which is all well and good, except there's just one teensy-weensy problem with that. Because if you're right about everything all the time and I'm right about everything all the time and then we disagree, well, who's right then? We can't both be right, right? What are we supposed to do? Well, there's a journalist named Katherine Schultz who wrote a fascinating book called Being Wrong. Has anyone ever read Being Wrong or watched Katherine Schultz's TED Talks? Really fascinating. In her book, Schultz says that we have this human tendency toward three assumptions when we realize that there are people who think differently from us or disagree with us. Our first assumption is the most generous. They're probably just ignorant. They don't have all the facts that we have, and, and if they did have all the facts, they would see things the way that we see them. So we thoughtfully take it upon ourselves to enlighten them. People love that, right? And then when that doesn't work, when we discover that they have all the same facts that we have and they still think the way that they think, we move on to a second assumption. They're probably an idiot. They have access to all the facts, but clearly they lack the skills or the wisdom to piece the pieces together. So we try to explain things to them to move them from their idiocy to our team. But when they prove that they aren't idiots, that they have all the facts that we have, that they are just as competent as we are, there's just one assumption left. They're probably malicious. They have all the facts. They know the difference between right and wrong, so they're probably twisting the truth to support whatever their malevolent agenda may be. It sounds a little extreme, but whether we're aware of it or not, it's how so much of the world works. We see it in countries, we see it in politics, we see it in companies, in schools, in universities, in seminaries, and at the water cooler. We see it in families with our relatives, sometimes with our significant others. We even see it in churches. You don't have to go very far in the Christian life before we're affected by this kind of polarization, whether we're giving it or receiving it, but usually both. And the entire character and dignity of another person gets reduced to a nameless, faceless other which makes it easier to marginalize them and dismiss their views. So many of us do this. I do this. And when this becomes our way of interacting with the, the world, we end up with a culture of culture wars where people no longer feel safe to dialogue or to learn or ask questions, to explore new opinions, to make mistakes, or to be who they truly are. There are all kinds of conversations right now about how polarized we are in the United States and how polarized the American church is. But this isn't just an American issue. This is a human issue. People have been doing this almost since people, were, uh, people have existed. And we see it all over the world of the Bible. In fact, in the, the ancient Near Eastern culture of the Old Testament, the default that you were supposed to have was to view everyone who wasn't directly related to you with suspicion until they proved that they were trustworthy. If they weren't one of you, they were guilty until they were proven innocent. Well, our story this morning, we are going to encounter someone like that, a stranger. Someone on the wrong side of the debate. Some outsider in a field with us insiders. This morning we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Ruth that we've been calling Ruth, the Extraordinary Faithfulness of Ordinary People. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through this Old Testament book about two characters, Naomi and Ruth, a mother and her daughter-in-law. But this morning, we're going to look at the story through the perspective of a third main character in the story, a guy by the name of Boaz. So if you brought your Bibles, 
I'd invite you to open up with me to chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to get to know Boaz a little bit. So just like Amelia beautifully read for us, it says this, starting at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Boaz is a great name. If you're having a son, name him Boaz. Boaz. So there are a few things that we know about Boaz right away. Boaz was an Israelite with an amazing reputation. It doesn't really come through in the English as strongly as it gets conveyed in the Hebrew, but Boaz was a man of deep character, deep substance, deep clout, deep influence. He was a man of righteousness. He was worthy of respect, but he was also humble about it. Somewhere along the line, we've added in that Boaz looked like reggae John Page, and he arrived to work on horseback and spoke in a debonair British accent. There is nothing in the Bible about any of that. In fact, there's no evidence in the Hebrew that anyone in the Bible spoke with a British accent. What the writer of the story wants us to notice is not Boaz's chiseled abs or his eligibility as a bachelor. What we're supposed to pick up is the depth of his character and his grace. That's Boaz. And when Boaz wakes up that morning and he looks out at his field, he notices someone new, someone that he doesn't recognize. And Boaz sees her, he doesn't recognize her, and he asks his foreman, who does that woman belong to? Whose family is she from? Do we trust her or not? Now, at this point in the book, we do know a little bit about this woman, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman a non-Israelite who married an Israelite man who uh, found himself in her country when there was a famine in his country. So he left his country, moved to her country, found her, married her, but her father-in-law and husband both died. So she made this courageous choice to stay with her mother-in-law, to travel back to her mother-in-law's country with her rather than staying with her own people in Moab, where she could have gotten remarried and, and started a new life for herself. Instead, she makes this incredible sacrificial choice to make a home in a land that was foreign to her, among people who are strange to her, to make their home her home and to make their God her God. That's most of what we know about Ruth. Somewhere along the line, we've also thrown in that she was like a Cinderella-type character whose beauty sparkled through the tatters in her clothes and the ashes on her face. But there is nothing in the Bible about that either. What the writer of the story wants us to notice is one thing about Ruth, and it's a thing that gets repeated over and over in this section of the story. She is the Moabite from Moab. Ruth, the Moabite from Moab. Ruth, the not from around here. Ruth, the different. Ruth, the other. Five times just in this one passage, the writer reminds us, Ruth ain't one of us. Why? Why is this so important that the writer makes sure that we don't miss it? Well, Pastor Ali shared last week that Moabites were Israel's not-so-friendly neighbors. Moabites were just wrong. Moabite people were believed to be distant relatives on the shady side of Father Abraham's family tree. They were pagan worshipers of Chemosh, who was a god that demanded child sacrifice. But the real insult, 
The real reason that the Israelites held this long-standing grudge, they traced it all the way back to the days when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, starving in the desert, and they tried to pass through Moab. And not only did the Moabites try to block them from passing through, but they also denied giving them food and water. Even though the Israelites were starving in the desert, even though the Israelites were dying of thirst, even though the Israelites offered to pay for it, Moabites were the worst. They hated Moabites. And because of all this, Mosaic law forbade the Israelites from marrying Moabites and threatened the Israelites from marrying Moabites, and they threatened a permanent bar to citizenship for any descendants of marriages between Moabites and Israelites for 10 generations. Good people like us don't associate with bad people like them. And here's a Moabite right in Boaz's field. The foreman tells Boaz who she is, and I imagine him saying it with like a little bit of judgment in his voice. Yeah, that's the Moabite we heard about. Get this. She even asked me this morning if she could glean behind the harvesters. Can you imagine? A Moabite who refused Boaz's ancestors any food when they were starving in the wilderness, remember, is now asking Boaz for free food when she's the one starving in the wilderness. Can you imagine the audacity? Beggars like Ruth, and Ruth was a beggar, did not gather grain behind the harvesters. That's not how harvesting worked, and everyone knew it. So if you can picture it, imagine an ancient field of grain. So first, hired men would get the first pass. They would grab handfuls of standing grain with, their, with one hand, they'd tear them off at the base with a sickle, and then they'd leave them on the ground to be gathered. And then hired women would follow the hired men, and they'd gather all the cut grain into the bundles, and they would bring it over to carts to be sorted. And once the real work was done, once the best grain had been harvested and gathered, the gleaning would begin. This comes from, this was a practice from Mosaic law. So Mosaic law required Israelites to leave all the corners of their field uncut when they harvested. And if they missed scraps of grain in their bundles, they were to leave them on the ground for the poor to glean. It was kind of like an ancient welfare system. Gleaners were the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the poor. Gleaning was a dirty job. And gleaners were competitive with each other. It was also a rough job. They were subject to abuse. Uh, unaccompanied women would be subject to violation or even worse. And so this Moabite gleaner's request to the foreman is pretty bold. She asks to glean, not after all the work is done, but among the harvesters. She's asking to be on first line. My husband worked at Starbucks in college, and people make all kinds of ridiculous requests at Starbucks. But one morning, my husband was working, this guy gets to the front of the line, and he said, so I'll have a free grande cappuccino. And my husband was like so impressed with the boldness of his ask that he just gave him a free cappuccino. <laughs> I'm going to try that sometime. That's what Ruth was doing. The law gave her an inch and she's asking for a mile. She's doing just what the foreman would expect a Moabite to do. Take advantage of people's generosity. Moabites are the worst. How will Boaz respond? How would you respond? This might not be our story exactly. Most of us don't own fields in the ancient Near East. But we all know this feeling. At some point or another, we've all found a Moabite in our otherwise peaceful field. 
I bet you could think of one right now. Maybe you have a whole Rolodex of Moabites. They're the wrong ones, the ones who have caused you trouble, the ones who have, have created drama, who have trespassed on your goodwill. Maybe it's someone in your family, your colleague who's always criticizing you, your roommate who doesn't respect your stuff, your brother-in-law who doesn't believe in global warming. Maybe it's your parent whose expectations are too high or your significant other and things just aren't going well right now. Maybe it's a whole group of people, those conservatives, or those liberals, or those critics. Maybe it's the people whose lifestyle frightens you, or the people whose interpretation of scripture threatens you. Or maybe it's the people who you worry are taking advantage of the system. They're Moabites in our fields. They're the outsiders. They don't belong here. But Boaz's response to the Moabite from Moab isn't what we might expect. Because his response to her would have been very unusual in that culture. It would have been shocking even. He walks right up to Ruth. And first of all, he talks to her. Now remember, Boaz is a male landowner with significant social standing. And Ruth is a poor foreign woman with no social position who's been dumpster diving in his field. Important men didn't talk to women like that in public. But Boaz doesn't seem to care about that. He approaches her and he says, daughter, daughter. Rather than condemning her, rather than rejecting her, rather than talking to her like the stranger that she is, he uses the familiar language of family, daughter. And then he says this. He says, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. To this outsider who he's never met, to this starving foreigner, he offers exactly what her ancestors denied his starving ancestors. Food, water, and protection. And he doesn't just offer her the scraps. He offers her the food and water that has been reserved for his own people. And he tells his, his workers that rather than just leaving behind all the extra stocks, that they should pick stocks for her. Now imagine, put yourself in Ruth's shoes, imagine the shock, the disbelief, and then the relief that she would have felt when she heard these words. And then Boaz keeps going. He stretches the social politeness even more. He invites her to eat at his own table among his people. And then he serves her himself. This was unheard of hospitality, completely radical. It would have been nothing that Ruth would have ever expected. You know, sometimes uh, when I have a Sunday off, I'll go visit other churches, and I typically make it a point to visit churches where I will be a minority in the room. I visit churches where I'm the only English speaker or where I'm the only Caucasian person. I want to stay connected to the feeling of being a little bit lost at church so that I can remember to be hospitable in our church when people are feeling a little bit lost. And I remember once I visited a black church in Boston, and I, I walked up to the sidewalk uh, toward the building, and the greeter looked at me, and he said hello, and he clearly thought that I was just passing by. But I asked where to go to find the church, and, and he said, oh, he like got this like bright smile on his face, and he said, you're coming here? Wonderful. Well, if you, if you go through these doors, you turn right, there's a free breakfast. And if you turn left, you can find our sanctuary. Our service is going to start in a couple of minutes. It was such a kind welcome. And I walked in, I wanted to be there on time for the service, and so another greeter came and noticed me and found me and helped me find a seat in the sanctuary. 
And by the time the service started, there, had, there were about 200 people who had gathered in the sanctuary. I was the only white person in the room. And halfway through the service, the pastor gets up to give announcements, and part of his announcements was to welcome the visitors. And he gets up and he said, so, are there any visitors in the room? <laughs> and he like scans the room, and then he looks straight at me. And I knew I couldn't hide, so I raised my hand, and he runs over to me and he hands me the microphone. This would not fly in our church, by the way. We're not gonna do this at our church. He hands me the microphone, he says, well, stand up, introduce yourself. So I stand up and I introduce myself. <laughs> And he said, well, let's, let's welcome our sister to our church. And no joke, all 200 people in the sanctuary got up and they formed a receiving line to welcome me to their church. Some of them hugged me, they shook my hand, some of them kissed me on the cheek. And after the service, many of them came and they sought me out and they found me to invite me back to their service. This community noticed me. They noticed that I was an outsider they recognize that I might not know their church culture, that I might be feeling a little bit ill at ease or uncomfortable because I was a minority in the room, and they went above and beyond to make me feel at home and help me feel welcome. I wonder where these black brothers and sisters developed that kind of empathy. That is the kind of radical hospitality that Boaz extends to Ruth. It is unmerited generosity. It's an expression of unmerited, undeserved, unearned friendship. And at the end of the day, he sends her home with what was probably about 30 to 50 uh, pounds of grain, which is enough to fill your baggage allowance at the airport, plus leftovers from lunch to bring home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Why? Why would he do this? It's a question Ruth asked. Why are you doing this? She says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Why be kind to me? I'm only a foreigner. I'm only a stranger. I'm only a woman. I'm only a Moabite from Moab. And he responds, he says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. So there's something kind of curious in Boaz's phrasing, the way he phrases that last part. He says, I heard how you left your homeland and came to live with people you did not know before. So you might expect Boaz a wealthy, strong, influential Israelite like Boaz to say the thing in reverse. I heard how you left that strange land to live among us familiar good people. But he says, it's, it, says it backwards. It's like he can see things from Ruth's perspective. You left your familiar home and came to live among us strangers. He calls his people the strangers. Why would he do that? Why would he see things from Ruth's perspective? Well, it just so happens that according to Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, Boaz's mom was Rahab. And if you know the story of Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was an outsider. Rahab was a Canaanite woman who had the good sense to recognize that Yahweh was the only true God. She had the courage to hide enemy spies in her home to help the cause of Israel. Rahab was the first non-Israelite person to ally with the people of Israel. Rahab actually joined the Israelites. She knew what it was like to leave her home and to live among strangers. Maybe Rahab's son, Boaz, knew something from his mom about otherness. You have to wonder if Boaz alone among the men of Israel could see the world from Ruth's perspective that Israel could be a strange place 
or a scary place or a hard place. You have to to wonder if Boaz's immediate protective response when he sees a, a daring, bold immigrant in his field was not in large part influenced by the nurturing presence of his daring, bold immigrant mother who raised him to be the kind of man who would see an an outsider and invite her to stay in his field and drink his water and eat his food. The kind of man who would see her and not ignore her, who would welcome her and not shun her, who would pray for her. Verse 12 says, may the Lord repay you, this is Boaz, he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know, Boaz offers this as a prayer for Ruth, but from Ruth's perspective, this prayer has already been answered. It's been answered through Boaz. In verse 13, she responds, she says, you have given me comfort by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Now this word comfort, it's a powerful word in scripture. It means to revive, to, to be revived, to be refreshed, to be relieved. You don't find this kind of comfort in cliches, like it's all going to be all right, or everything happens for a reason, which isn't in the Bible, by the way. You don't find this kind of comfort in tweets about thoughts and prayers. This kind of comfort comes because somebody actually does something real. I'm talking about concrete, tangible, meaningful hospitality. When someone sticks their own neck out to personally guarantee you protection and safety and well-being, It's why, as a church, we have made it a point to to pray for people, to walk with people who are going through difficult seasons, to help them grow spiritually and connect with Jesus, and why we try to care for people's practical, physical needs as well. Ministries like, uh, through ministries like Anchor Bay Health, which provides healthcare clinics for people who lack access to healthcare. Ministries like the Outreach Meal, which provides a free meal to our neighbors in need once a month. Ministries like our Benevolence Fund, which uh, helps people within and beyond our church who are struggling to make ends meet by paying a a, a heating bill or a month of rent. It's why we host the Beverly Beverly Bootstraps Food Locker in our parking lot that Pastor Ethan talked about to help people with food insecurity have access to food 24-7. It's why we're currently dreaming and praying about starting a community garden in our parking lot so that we can grow fruits and vegetables to give away. It's why we partner with organizations like Fostering Hope to come around foster and adoptive families, ministries like Cornerstone Creative that are helping juveniles, kids who are coming out of lockup to make a better life for themselves by learning carpentry skills. It's why we founded Open Door Immigration Services, which is a nonprofit legal clinic that operates out of our building to help immigrants through the very difficult legal naturalization process. My husband started working with Open Door Immigration Services, Otis, uh, last spring as their co-executive director And he's told me that one of his favorite parts of the job is when he actually gets to hand someone their green card for the first time. He says that the joy and relief on their faces is absolutely unreal. Some of their clients have been waiting for a green card for years, maybe even decades, and they they receive this little piece of paper, and when they receive it, they say things like, now I can finally visit my family and not be afraid. Now I don't have to worry about being deported to my home country without my kids. Now I can finally be at peace. There are a few things that green card holders can't do. They can't vote or hold political office, among a a few other things. But for the most part, green card holders are entitled to the same protections and privileges as if they were American citizens. It is a real, practical, physical need. 
And these ministries meet these kinds of real needs for our neighbors, just like Boaz did for Ruth. Now imagine being Ruth and being in the kind of vulnerable position that she was in. She was worried about her own safety and security. Was she going to be able to eat? Was she going to get violated in the field? She had no idea what the rest of her life was going to be like. And imagine being a stranger in a strange land and now you're able to go to work each day and know that you are going to be physically safe. No one is going to touch you or harm you. Imagine knowing that you have the food you need to provide for your family. Imagine that you have financial security that you need to survive. Imagine having all of that without having earned it or without having to give anything in return. And this wasn't just something that Boaz learned from his mom. This was a repeated command all throughout the Old Testament to God's people. Show hospitality to the strangers among you, to those in need among you. Why? We find the answer in Deuteronomy. There's this interesting line in the law about gleaners. If you go back to the Mosaic law about gleaners, Deuteronomy says this. It says, leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And then it says why. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. God says, at one point, you were the other. You were the foreigner. You were the mistreated one. You were the one on the underside of power. You were someone else's Moabite. You know what it's like. And when it all comes down to it, that's what this kind of hospitality is about. This kind of radical hospitality, God calls us to show the Moabites that show up in our fields. It comes as an outflow of the hospitality that we ourselves have received from God when we were the ones who were like the Moabites. Because through Rahab's line and through Ruth's line, generations later, a man would later be born to the nation of Israel And this man didn't always act like the people of his day wanted him to, according to their version of rightness and wrongness. Jesus seemed to beeline towards all the wrong people, all those people, toward the outcasts and the ostracized and the stigmatized. And he made friends with sinners and with tax collectors and with prodigals and with prostitutes. And he spoke about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And a little while later, he surrendered himself to his own enemies to be crucified. At the heart of the Christian faith is a man who refused to to claim his own rightness, who died instead for his enemies, who died for his oppressors, who died for all the Moabites, even when those Moabites were you and me. Now, a commitment to this can only lead us to a radically different way of responding to those who are radically different from us. It means there's no more place in the Christian life, to demonize the Moabites in our lives because we all stand equally under the same cross and the same declaration of grace and welcome. It means we can respond to the Moabites who show up in our fields not with self-righteousness or anger or fear, but with the same grace and compassion and radical hospitality that God showed us on the cross. Because without this reconciliatory love of God, we are all Moabites in someone else's field. But because of Christ's radical love for us, we have been made insiders in his family and in his kingdom. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Friends, this year, my hope for us is that we can deepen in the radical hospitality of God. 
And, and I want to say, too, that doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries. We talk a lot as a church about boundaries. We dedicate whole sermons sometimes to boundaries. So boundaries are really important. Hospitality does not mean that we aren't boundaried with people that we don't know or understand or who haven't shown themselves to be worthy of uh, the kind of relationship that doesn't need those kinds of boundaries. Boundaries are really important. But this sermon, I want to talk about hospitality, and I want us to pull out all of the stops to show radical hospitality to people who walk through our doors, whether they look or act or believe like us or not. Anyone who walks into our community, let's ask, how can we go above and beyond to help this person or this family feel at home here? How can we blow them away with the kindness of God? How can we show them, even in a small way, what the hospitality of God looks like? And then I want us to think hospitably beyond our church walls and our church community. How can we, as Anchor Bay Church, show radical hospitality to people who don't go to our church, to people who aren't part of our community? How do we represent Christ, who Christ is to everyone and anyone that we might come across, no matter who they are? And I also want to invite us to think hospitably about the widows, the orphans, the impoverished, the immigrant, the people among us who, on the North Shore who might not feel quite at home or who might not feel quite at ease. How can we reach out to them to bring them comfort? How can we put them at ease? How can we emulate Boaz as he foreshadows Christ? Some of us act like or, or think, maybe even subconsciously, that the Moabites in our field are an inconvenience to be tolerated. But is it possible that they are showing up in our field, in your field, at exactly this moment, so that they can experience through you, through us, how wide and long and high and deep is the radical love of Christ. The old way, the, the letter of the law, drove us to the edge of the field with the other gleaners. But God's way invites us into the family table on the arm of the guest of honor, Jesus. An Israelite with a little Moabite in his bloodline. So let's link arms with the Moabites who show up in our fields and invite them to the table too. Let's pray. God, with gratitude, we acknowledge that we are the Moabites in your field and that you have invited us in with a kind of radical love and hospitality that we did not earn and we do not deserve. God, we ask that you would show us that day by day and that that, as I prayed in the beginning, would ignite us towards gratitude, gratitude that spills out into hospitality for everyone else around us. God, give us generous eyes to see people as you see them and to invite them into your kingdom as you've invited us into your kingdom. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.